The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, April 18th, 2021, on the basis of Acts 3, verses 11 through 20. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Closing arguments in our nation's most high-profile criminal case are set to be heard tomorrow. And very soon, no doubt, after that, a verdict will be rendered. I'm sure you're aware of the name of the defendant in that criminal case. His name is Derek Chauvin. You're probably also aware of the name of the man that he's been accused of murdering. His name is George Floyd. In case you didn't know, the name of the judge in that case is Peter Cahill. The name of the defense attorney is Eric Nelson. And the name of the prosecuting attorney is Keith Ellison. And yet, no matter how closely you may be following that very high-profile case, there are some names of people who are very much involved in that case that I know for a fact you don't know. And that would be the names of the 12 jurors. In this high-profile case, those jurors are, being, are, are remaining anonymous, nameless. Their names are being kept hidden. And you can probably imagine why. In a case that involves as much tension as this one does, the names of the people who are ultimately going to decide the outcome of the case are being kept hidden so that those people can hopefully remain impartial. That word impartial is kind of a key word in our American justice system. In fact, it's actually encoded in our Constitution. In the Constitution, it says that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. Bill of Rights, Amendment 6. And I suppose in a, a human justice system, impartiality is about the best that we can possibly hope for. At the risk of stating the obvious, there is absolutely no one who is involved in our criminal justice system in any way whatsoever who is omniscient. In other words, someone who just knows all of the facts and all of the details of a given case so as to be able to arrive at a verdict that is beyond all question and all doubt. There is no one who knows all the facts of every single case and because that is true, impartiality is about the best that we can hope for, that the men and women who are entrusted with deciding the outcomes of cases would not have their minds made up even before the case begins. I suppose you could also say that impartiality is about the best that we can hope for in the sort of daily life mini-trials that you and I go through. In other words, when people form opinions about us, when people draw conclusions about us, when our name is discussed at a staff meeting or a faculty meeting or a coaches meeting, when our friends talk about us or send texts about us, when our spouse or our children or our parents think about us, I suppose the best that we can possibly hope for is that they would be impartial, that they would judge us fairly, that we would start out in those cases with a blank slate. 
And yet, unfortunately, when it comes to those mini trials that we go through each and every day that determine either our guilt or our innocence, there is someone who very much knows all the facts of the case. All those words and actions and thoughts that we may be able to successfully hide from all of the people around us, we, of course, know those facts ourselves. What's more, God himself surely knows them. Which is why you've maybe experienced this, that even when you've got friends and family and coworkers and everyone else convinced fully that you are just the nicest person in the world, you may still find it much more difficult to convince yourself of that same thing. That even if everyone else thinks very highly of you, you still walk around with a fair amount of shame or even a great deal of guilt. Well, thankfully today we're going to see how God's justice system is very different from our human justice systems. Throughout the season of Easter, we've been talking about celebrating the life outside the box that Easter provides, a life that is not restrained by the limits that would otherwise be in place in a world where death reigns. And today specifically, we're going to see how the life outside the box Easter gives us includes the jury box. How God's system of justice is just so very different from the best that we can possibly come up with in this world. In fact, far from needing to protect the names of a bunch of jurors so that they can remain impartial, today we're going to see that God very much wants us to know one name in particular because this one name is the one name that can give us a life that is completely free of any and all guilt. As we look at these verses from Acts chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that Jesus' name proves that God is anything but impartial. Peter's use of Jesus' name in these verses comes as part of an explanation for some events that had just taken place. In the verses that are just prior to these, Luke tells us how Peter and John had performed a miracle in broad daylight right in the temple they had enabled a man who was crippled from birth to be able to walk. Well, Luke tells us that when this man's arms were still wrapped around Peter and John in joy for what had happened, there was a crowd of people that came rushing to the scene looking for an explanation. So Peter gave them one. Peter started out by saying, Our God, the God that you and I worship, fellow Israelites, the God of our fathers, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know full well the God that I'm talking about. Well, he has glorified. He has exalted. He has lifted up and placed in control of all things his servant, his Messiah, that special, chosen, long-awaited Messiah that we have been waiting for for centuries. He has finally arrived and that servant, that Messiah, his name is Jesus. I'm sure that last word in Peter's explanation hit them like a ton of bricks. Peter was letting them know that God had already made crystal clear his opinion of Jesus. God's verdict about Jesus, his life and his death, his words and his works was already in. God had declared Jesus his son. Easter was the ultimate proof of that. God had raised Jesus back to life. But Peter also says that this miracle that they had just performed was further proof of that fact. In case anyone was in doubt that Jesus was in fact God's son, Peter says, 
that it was Jesus' name that had the power to be able to perform the miracle that had just taken place, that Peter and John had enabled this man to walk. Now, the problem with that for the people who are listening to this is that they had a history with Jesus, a history that Peter recounts for them in case they had forgotten. They had handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Even though Jesus had been completely innocent, they had exchanged Jesus so that a murderer could be set free. Even though Jesus was the author of life, they had put them to death. And now Peter is saying that God had glorified this Jesus. Uh-oh. Imagine if this sort of thing would happen in a regular court of law, a regular criminal case. Imagine if during the jury screening process it was discovered that one of the potential jurors in the case actually had a history with the defendant. In fact, imagine if when they were both younger that defendant had bullied that potential juror, had mocked him mercilessly in elementary school, had shoved him into lockers and punched him on the playground and inflicted on him the kind of bullying that leads to trauma in a person's life for years and years to come. Safe to say that potential juror would not be able to be impartial in that case and that person would not be held on to as a juror. Well, the reality is that you and I don't really even need to imagine a situation like that because as was the case with the people who were listening to Peter, you and I do, in fact, have a history with Jesus. Sure, we were not as directly involved in his crucifixion and his death as these people were, but we have our own history with Jesus. We have those disputes and disagreements that we've gotten into with him. We've butted heads with him over the way that we are supposed to live our lives. And the scary thing is exactly what Peter says here. And when it comes to those disputes and those disagreements, the outcome of the case is not up for debate. The verdict is already in. God has glorified Jesus. So when Jesus tells us, for example, to pick up our crosses and follow him, to deny ourselves things that we might want in favor for what he wants for us. We can ignore him if we want. We can decide to gratify our every desire. We can decide to pursue every ambition that we might have. But God has already glorified Jesus. That case is already closed. When Jesus says to us to seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, in other words, to make our relationship with him the number one priority in our life. We can choose to rank it somewhere lower than that. We can put it behind our hobbies and our social lives and our jobs if we want. We can make it one or two or five or 374. But God has already glorified Jesus. That case is already closed. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to forgive and even pray for people who have done wrong to us when he tells us to be patient and gracious and compassionate and generous with people who are different from us or who think differently from us. We can choose to still make every single thing an us versus them issue. We can draw those polarizing lines of tribalism. We can ridicule and demonize people who see things the opposite way from us on whatever the issue might be. 
But God has already glorified Jesus. That case is already closed. When it comes to how we treat Jesus, how we view Jesus, whether or not we listen to Jesus, God is not impartial about those things. Easter has already revealed God's opinion about Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. Perhaps you're feeling right now, or, or at least you should be feeling right now, sort of the way that Peter's original audience did. That if this is the history that we have with Jesus, and if at Easter God already revealed his opinion about Jesus, then we're in big, big trouble. At least we would be in big, big trouble. We certainly deserve to be in trouble, if not for what Peter said next. Yes, these people that he was talking to had this long history with Jesus, but that history was by no means an accident. That history was not a series of unfortunate and tragic events that God had somehow not been able to foresee. No, in fact, everything that had happened to Jesus happened according to plan. The scriptures foretold exactly what was going to happen to Jesus. In fact, Peter had heard Jesus say in that room on Easter Sunday evening, as we heard about in Luke 24, that the scriptures had said that Jesus would die on the cross. That was the plan part one, we might say. As Jesus said, the scriptures had also foretold that Jesus would rise from the dead. That was the plan part two. But the best part is, there's a plan part three. Jesus said that after he had risen, after he had died and risen from the grave, repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. In other words, the entire reason that Jesus suffered and died and rose was so that the name Jesus could be spoken and sung and shouted and whispered and printed and read in all corners of the world. And so that the forgiveness of sins that comes with that name, in other words, a life free from guilt, could be offered to all who heard that name free of charge. Which is why Peter did what he did. After addressing that crowd and reminding them of their history, he said this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. How about that? People who were directly involved in the suffering death and and death of Jesus could have their sins wiped out. When you picture that, don't picture a, a little child who's taking an eraser and erasing something that they wrote in kindergarten. Don't picture a a damp cloth that's being used to wipe off a a whiteboard. Picture something much more violent and aggressive than that. Peter is saying that the entire record of their sins was going to be destroyed and obliterated. All of the court documents were going to be shredded and burned. All of the video footage that had captured everything that they had done was going to be destroyed and erased from memory forever. Their sins were going to be wiped out in Jesus' name. And again, that was the plan all along. The scriptures had revealed that plan, that people would hear the name Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins that came along with it. Imagine if that happened in a regular court of law. I was actually reading a a little bit about the jury selection process in this Derek Chauvin trial. 
And I found out that out of all the questions that potential jurors were asked, there were two questions where their answers mattered more than any other in terms of whether or not they would be kept for the jury or not. Question number one was, what were their views of the Black Lives Matter movement? And question number two was, what were their views of America's law enforcement system and its police officers? So imagine a potential juror in that case, not just expressing rather strong opinions one way or another about either of those things during that interview process. Imagine if people involved in that case did a little bit of digging on somebody and found out online that they had posted all kinds of very strong opinions about one or the other of those things. In fact, imagine if a potential juror had written an entire manifesto for all the world to see, sharing their very strong opinions about one or the other of those things. Is it safe to say that that person could not possibly be impartial in that case and would not have been kept for that jury? But again, we don't really even need to imagine a scenario like that because that's exactly what we have in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's manifesto declaring ahead of time exactly what his plan is for us, exactly how he wants our case before him to turn out. If you are ever tempted to wonder whether you could possibly have your sins wiped out, the records destroyed, the video footage erased, if you are ever tempted to wonder whether your life could possibly be a life that is free from guilt, the scriptures say that that's what this entire thing is all about. That's what all of human history revolves around. Your sins being forgiven. That's why this Roman Empire under whom Jesus was put to death eventually fell. That's why there was a Dark Ages. That's why there was a Renaissance. That's why in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's why there was an American Revolution and eventually an American Constitution. That's why the internet was invented. That's why Donald Trump was elected president in 2016 and Joe Biden was elected president in 2020. Because God wants you to hear the name Jesus more. And God wants more to hear the name Jesus. God wants people to find that refreshing and guilt quenching forgiveness of sins that can only be found in Jesus' name. And every single time it reaches your ears or anyone else's, remember, that's the whole plan. That's what this is all about. In Scripture, God has revealed His plan for you. I mentioned that closing arguments in the case in the trial of Derek Chauvin are going to be heard tomorrow. Experts expect that very soon there will be a verdict. But believe it or not, today is actually the anniversary of what I think, at least, is a much more significant trial. It's referred to as the Diet of Worms. It's not a, a meal program or anything like that. It, it was kind of a, a trial. It was an assembly. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, was called to appear before Emperor Charles V, Emperor of the Holy Roman empire, probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he was asked one simple question. Will you recant? Will you take back the things that you've said, the things that you've written against the Roman Catholic Church? And in response, 
Luther said he would not take back one single thing he had said or written because he was convinced that all of it agreed with the scriptures. He closed out his response with his now famous words. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. It was April 18th, 1521, 500 years ago this very day. Now, in response to that answer, Charles V issued a verdict about Martin Luther. He said some very serious and significant things about that name, Martin Luther. He said this, We forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic as he deserves. In case that doesn't make it clear, Martin Luther was a man who lived outside the box. He was willing to endure a verdict and a sentence like that rather than give up even one single word of the Holy Scriptures. And why? Because in the Scriptures, he had found the name of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that comes with it. He had found a life free from guilt. And once he had that, he was willing to let anyone take away anything else. That's the power of a life where guilt is gone and where sins have been forgiven. And again, if you're ever tempted to wonder whether that can be yours, whether that power can be at work in your life, the good news is we don't need opening arguments. We don't need closing arguments. We don't need expert or eyewitness testimony. We don't need lengthy and careful deliberations by a judge or a jury when it comes to having the forgiveness of sins and a life free from guilt, the only word that you need to hear is Jesus. Amen. Amen.